Do you have an idea that could help improve education? Or know someone else who does? Fancy winning up to £10,000 to help turn those ideas into reality? Well, the Cool Initiatives Education Challenge 2019 is now open for applications. And by entering your idea or business, you could win from £500 as a finalist to £5,000 for runner-up and a cheque for £10,000 will go to the winner. What's the catch? There isn't a catch. The cash is yours with no strings attached. You want to buy biscuits? Then buy biscuits. But we would hope that the money is used on something that does turn your idea into reality. So who can enter? Those with a business already or those with just an idea for a business? All we ask is that you're based in the UK and have not had any equity investment already. For more details, take a look at our website, coolinitiatives.com forward slash competition. And please just get in touch if you have a question. Cool Initiatives already works with over 12,000 schools every day, with 20 years' experience of building and sustaining a profitable business. We want to be able to use that experience to support others at the very start of their journey, and the education challenge is our commitment to those who want to make a difference. So again, to find out more about the challenge and to enter, visit coolinitiatives.com forward slash competition. everyone. I hope you had a mammoth week, whether you were at BET, Learn It, Davos, EWF, in your mum's garage plotting your new edtech startup, in your classroom inspiring the next generation of thinkers and doers, or kicking back listening to the edtech podcast in the car. We salute you. And a big thank you to Cool Initiatives for sponsoring this week's episode. If you were in London, you may have heard that the Secretary of State for Education, Damien Hind, revealed government plans this week for a £10 million investment fund to create a marketplace for education buyers during his keynote at BET. Here's his speech on all of that. Welcome to, uh, to BET 2019. Uh, Actually, the most amazing, brilliant showcase of education, technology, and innovation at its very, uh, at its very best. Uh, actually, not just its best, but its biggest. Uh, so here we are at the 35th uh, BET show, bigger than ever. Uh, it just keeps on growing. And speaking of keeps on growing, uh, we're really proud that this show happens here in London, uh, because we are very proud in the UK of our... Uh, our edtech sector, the fourth largest uh, in the world with a projected export value of around £170 million. That's over uh, $200 million. And I want that to keep on growing uh, as well. But of course, here at BET, you see uh, products and innovations and services from right across the world, as well as from here in Britain. You might say it is a sort of an Aladdin's cave for the education geek. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I have a confession to make to you. I am that geek. Uh, Or at least I used to be. Now, I wonder if any of you are old enough to remember this from your youth. I certainly am. This was one of my hobbies when I was a child growing up. Coding, or as we used to call it, programming. Uh, Sitting in your bedroom trying to get a game out of something as simple and straightforward as a Commodore uh, VIC-20. And for any of you who are not old enough to remember what these types of technologies were, a Commodore VIC-20 was something you used to plug into your telly and you'd plug in a tape deck uh, to load up programs. It was something about the size of a small coffee table with about the same amount of memory. And, And I compare that now to something like Fortnite, which my children tell me does not actually take 14 days to play, but does seem to take something like 14 gigabytes uh, to download. Uh, It was hard writing a playable game with 3,583 bytes of RAM. Hard, but not impossible. In fact, in some ways, when technology was simpler, life was simpler. Uh, And when I took my first uh, job at the age of 17, or at least the first job that I had to wear a suit for every day, it was at IBM in Manchester. And it was possible back in those days, in 1987, 
as a 17-year-old to be taught in half a day how to take apart a PC and put it back together. And actually, if I reflect back to those times in the late 1980s, I'm struck that actually we had most of, or all actually, of the core ingredients of office productivity that we have today. We had spreadsheeting, we had word processing, we had slide design, we had database, and we had, uh, and we had desktop publishing. There is the classic Lotus 123. Who's old enough to remember that? But I'm struck by the difference between having uh, groundbreaking innovation and then having the sorts of great leaps forward that make those innovations work at their full potential, at their full scale in the mass market. And of course, today we still have spreadsheeting and word processing and database technology and so on. But it was the graphical user interface and point and click technology which made it available to that mass market in an accessible, uh, in an accessible way. Uh, back in 1987, I was a bit weird because I worked at IBM. I had an email address. Uh, but if I said that to any of my friends, they had no idea what I was talking about because it took a number of years and a period and three more letters at the end of every email address to make it actually work for the consumer. It took the internet, the biggest leap forward uh, of them all. And speaking of leap forwards, let's leap forward to where we are today. And we have some astounding uh, examples of education technology available. You'll see many of them in the halls out there. And actually, you can see many of them in use, in very active and productive use in our schools in this country today. Such as at, at Bolton College, where their chatbot called Ada, named of course after the great Ada Lovelace, uh, is enabling personalised learning for 14,000 students, but also uh, being able to deal with so many routine and quite a lot of not so routine uh, questions to relieve uh, the burden of administration on staff. Or High Furlong School in Blackpool, where they're using technology in very innovative ways uh, to, support, uh, to support their students with special educational needs and disabilities to get the very most out of their education. Or Sandringham High School, uh, where they're using technology uh, to, to create a generation of uh, discerning consumers of information, being critical uh, users of technology and searching out bias online. So there are many, many, many encouraging and very positive things happening in education technology. But EdTech also faces some particular uh, challenges, I think, unique to the education sector. One of them uh, is that EdTech sometimes gets a bit of a bad name because this is one of the few sectors where technology has been associated for some people not with a decrease in their work, but an increase. And one example of that is email. Now, email is great when it replaces other types of uh, communication to make things more productive. But in education, what you often hear from teachers is that it hasn't replaced anything, it's just added to it. And to deal with this, we need uh, schools and leaders to think in innovative ways, and then we also need the edtech companies also to come up with more solutions. Now, of course, one of the uh, very best things about uh, technology, and one way in which it has changed remarkably uh, since the 1980s, is its ability to crunch large amounts of data, uh, and often, though sadly not always, turn that into informative analysis and charts and outputs. But of course, the data has to come from somewhere. And this is another way in which EdTech, technology, uh, and IT can get a bit of a bad name in the world of education. Because the sheer volume of data that is required or is asked for to be inputted into these systems can create an additional burden uh, on teachers. Then there's the market itself. And there's probably no better example of an efficient market working well than here in the Excel Center uh, in January 2019, bringing together buyers, sellers, the interested, the curious, to come together to taste and see what is on offer. But away from bet, uh, there can be some uh, difficulties with how the market works 
for EdTech products. If you are a uh, teacher, you're a school, you're a school leader or a head, uh, actually it can be very difficult to know from this vast range of what is on the market really what is good. Uh, from the point of view of a seller, uh, particularly if you have a devolved system as we do in this country and we are very proud of our devolved system in education and think it is a great strength, but that can also make it hard for a seller to reach the buyer and to be able cost-effectively to, to do their marketing and their product exposition. There can be a very understandable nervousness on behalf of schools dealing sometimes with brands and names that they are not familiar with and wondering if they can be certain that these will be around in a number of years' time. And then there's the issue about making a commitment. Once you've signed up for a particular piece of software, a particular uh, program, it can feel like you're locked in. Uh, and that can both make people stick with things perhaps longer than they would have done otherwise, but also make them more reluctant to take them on in the first place. And that can mean uh, some wastage, uh, which is a serious issue. A serious issue because EdTech is now big business. In the, uh, here in England, uh, EdTech, or technology in general in schools, now has a spend of some £450 million a year. So we need to make sure that money is being spent uh, effectively. So from this spring, we are going to be shaping our EdTech strategy for England. And it has a number of different elements to it. One of them is our friends at BISA are running a number of roadshows around the country which have already started bringing the tech to teachers uh, to enable more schools to see what is on offer, to see what is uh, possible. Uh, they are free. They're happening right throughout the country and I'd encourage you, uh, if you haven't already, to sign up to attend one. We also want schools to be able to see good tech in action and that's why we're going to be rolling out a network of demonstrator schools and colleges where educators can get the sort of peer-to-peer -peer support and the training uh, that they tell us uh, is important to them and raise their confidence level and skill in using some of these key uh, products. We need to have a trusted single place, an education destination if you like, where people know where to go for education uh, products and services and by the way this isn't just for teachers but also thinking about parents and direct consumers uh, of education services as well. And finally, because of those challenges that I mentioned with the way that markets work, we need to have an informed marketplace where people can buy uh, with confidence and that also makes it uh, more effective, more efficient for sellers to market their wares. And an important part of that is this product, which is being trialled by BISA, launches today. It's called LendEd. So it's an opportunity with uh, tech products to try before you buy. It also allows uh, teachers to, uh, to write reviews and you can see case studies and get hints and tips and advice on how to get the most out of these products. And if you do then go on to buy the product, you have the reassurance of knowing uh, that the companies involved have been vetted. So I want to make sure that uh, in our education system, we are able to make the fullest use of the complete range of opportunities available through EdTech. But I also want to make sure that we are able to be specific in what problems we are trying to solve. Now, we have set aside a £10 million innovation fund uh, in order to help to drive this forward. And part of that is going to be about addressing some very specific uh, challenges. These are real-world issues that exist uh, today that we can look for new uh, solutions to. And they cover everything from uh, administration, assessment, learning at all stages, uh, teaching practice itself, and then the professional development of uh, teachers. Now, we, I could have a lot more than 10 things up here. I mean, just if you look at special educational needs, could be expanded into a number of a number of different uh, items. And in different countries, there may be a different list. So, for example, uh, there'll be places where uh, accessing remote or particularly sparse rural communities is a very important 
uh, thing to develop. But I thought 10 was quite a lot already, uh, and we wanted to have focus. So these are the, these are the 10 we are going to be, uh, going to be focusing uh, on. And each one of those, they're just a pithy little phrase, but each one of them uh, has a very specific uh, challenge attached to it, and in most cases, a measurable, definable metric as well. For now, let me just talk about three of them. First of all, on uh, lesson prep. Uh, I want to see what technology companies can come forward with uh, to help to cut the time that teachers spend on preparing uh, and marking uh, homework and in-class assessments. Obviously, this is absolutely vital work. It is at the core of what we do in school. It's at the core of what teachers uh, are about. But it takes too long. And so I want to see what we can do through technology to cut the time doing that by two hours a week or more. Um, Secondly, uh, the engagement of parents. And obviously, parents are uh, crucial uh, to children's education. Um, Again, I think there is an opportunity here to cut the amount of time that this takes while enhancing uh, the quality of uh, interaction with parents. And as an example, we already have some schools in the northeast of, uh, of this country uh, where they've introduced an online learning journal uh, which enriches the amount of information available to parents and their involvement in their child's uh, education and their pr- the progress they're making, but without adding pressure or more pressure onto teachers. And finally, for now, beat the cheats. So we know that the, uh, the growth of uh, essay mills, sort of the subcontracting of work, if you like, uh, and, the, uh, and, and the older problem of plagiarism. These things, of course, undermine uh, the great work that students do at university and also, over time, actually undermines the, or erodes the, uh, the validity, the value of qualifications uh, themselves. And software exists and is widely used to try and identify uh, plagiarism and abuse. But it seems also that the problem persists and in some, in some ways, in some cases, seems to be getting worse. So for us, to be, uh, for us to keep up with this, we need to make sure that we are not just up with the cheats, but one step ahead of the cheats and get smarter uh, in the way we do it. And for all of these three and the other seven on the list, there are three further tests which I think need to be woven through them. Uh, The first is that things have to be cost-effective. Ideally, actually, to reduce the cost that schools are expending on these things, to free up more resource uh, for teaching and learning and all the other important things that schools do. Um, I also want it not only to involve a manageable amount of teacher workload, but to cut the amount of teacher workload that is being expended. And finally, and most importantly of all, of course, Uh, It's all about uh, outcomes. It's all about enhancing learning so that more children can do better learning and fulfill their full potential. Now, I think you're all showing remarkable self-restraint, by the way, by sitting here uh, listening to uh, people doing PowerPoint presentations. I apologise for that. Uh, But there are some fantastic presentations coming up after mine, which I hope you will will enjoy. And I know then you're going to want to get out into into the Aladdin's cave uh, out there to see the full breadth uh, of all that is on offer. Um, I do believe we are truly on the cusp of uh, amazing things in education uh, technology. Uh, And there are some truly amazing uh, products and services out there. And I say amazing in the truest sense that when you see them, you are actually taken aback by what is possible. But in some ways, I still feel we're still in 1987 that we have a lot of these brilliant innovations, but we need to make more connections. We need to create conveyors to bring these things to their fullest uh, potential throughout our system. And BET and the opportunity you have uh, today uh, to be with colleagues and, and innovators in this system from around the world is an unrivaled opportunity to do that. We must never think about technology for its own sake. Technology is an enabler and an enhancer. And ladies and gentlemen, you in this room are a big part of that because we need a partnership approach between educators and innovators, between the technology companies, and government has a role as well, to make sure that we work together to forge those brilliant tools for a brighter future for all our children. Thank you. If that 
wasn't inspiring enough, I caught up with one of our listener heroes, Mitch Resnick, the originator of Scratch, during a sit-down at BET. Here he is talking projects, passion, peers and play, and why these four P's are pretty paramount to perfecting personal ideas. Okay, so I'm back at BET, hooray, and um, I'm here with Mitch Resnick, um, so currently Lego Professor of Learning Research, if I've got my homework correct, um, and an absolute uh, legend in the kind of ed tech, educational innovation and sort of um, wider field. So uh, I've put in my notes here, you know, for many listeners, you'll be, you know, such an exciting guest to have on for us. So uh, thank you for making the time, first of all. Well, it's great to be joining you. Um, and from a, a little bit of online stalking, you know, um, your doctoral advisor, if I'm if I understand correctly, was Seymour Papart. You're behind the invention of the ever-popular Scratch, programming software for kids, and obviously there's a whole myriad of other projects that we'll probably learn about. So I guess my first question is, what's your current thinking dedicated to, and uh, what have you been talking to people um, here at BET about? I think in almost all the work that we do, our primary goal is to how can, is helping kids develop as creative thinkers. We think there's nothing more important in today's world and the ability to think and act creatively. Things are changing so quickly in the world, we don't know exactly what kids will need to know in the future, but we know that they'll need to come up with creative solutions to the unexpected situations that they undoubtedly will confront. So whether we're developing new technologies or new activities or new strategies, we're always thinking, how is it that we can help kids develop as creative thinkers? So, I mean, that, that's really interesting because... I'm moderating a panel on Friday and it's about um, early years, innovation and early years education. And um, sort of, I'm sure part of that discussion will kind of fall into how do we, you know, there's this whole discussion about how you close or don't close the attainment gap, for example. Uh, and I've been reading about, you know, the idea of attention and focus and sort of trying to hone these skills perhaps where sometimes they're lacking. But then at the same time, you know, we know that like... Uh, it's through creative thinking and, and play as well that that we kind of come come up with some of our deeper deeper ideas and connecting mm. across ideas. So, yeah. how do we how do we kind of uh, broach those two things? Well, I think sometimes when kids seem not to have attention or if they have attention problems, sometimes it's because they're not given the chance to work on things they really care about. Yeah. So in our work, we're always trying to see how can we allow people to work on things they really care about. Because we've seen over and over that people in general, kids in particular, are willing to work longer and harder and persist in the face of challenges when they work on things they really care about. So I do think it's important for kids to be persistent and to be able to you know, work through things. But it's not a matter of teaching them persistence the abstract. Mm -hmm. It's helping them identify their interests to be able to find things to work on they really care about. Uh, and then we've seen in a lot of settings, we have these after-school centers called computer clubhouses, and there are some kids who hadn't been doing well at school, were seen as having attention problems at school. When they come to these after-school computer clubhouses and they find a project they care about, that they're willing to work hours on end, and it amazes their teachers who never imagined that these kids could do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that brings me to um, so the, the lifelong kindergarten group at MIT Media Lab, and unfortunately I didn't have time to sort of delve into that too, too much, but I was sort of thinking lifelong and kindergarten is that sort of oxymoronic, and then I was wondering whether it was the idea that we embrace play across our lives um, and establish lifelong learning, um, or establish lifelong learning at, at sort of the kindergarten age onward. So what, what's the kind of thinking behind that group, and, and what do you do there? I've always been inspired by the way children learn in kindergarten. If you think of the traditional kindergarten, children spend a lot of time playfully creating things in collaboration with one another. You know, building a tower with blocks or Lego bricks, uh, making a picture with finger paints and crayons. In the process, they learn a lot. When they build a tower, they learn about structure and stability. When they use finger paints, they learn how colors mix together. But even more important, they learn about the creative process, how to start with an idea, create a project based on that idea, share it with someone else, get feedback and suggestions, experiment with it, keep adapting it and revising it over time. Uh, and that's where creativity, uh, that's where the creativity, the creative process you know, comes from, is that type of constant experimenting, exploring and expressing yourself. So we see kindergarten gets kids off to a good start, 
But too often, kids then move on in school and they sit in their desks, listen to lectures, fill out worksheets, mm -hmm. and they don't continue to develop their creative capacities. So I called my research group the Lifelong Kindergarten Group because we want to take that same spirit that we see in the traditional kindergarten and bring it to learners of all ages. So when we've worked on projects like Scratch and Lego Robotics, those aren't meant for kindergarten kids generally. It's generally for older kids. Yeah. But they're designed to be used in that kindergarten spirit where kids playfully create things in collaboration with one another and in the process develop as creative thinkers. Well, it's interesting that you, you, you talk about that because I think um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on where sort of uh, coding initiatives have gone. So we've kind of come, almost come like f full circle, I feel, with coding initiatives and, and, and obviously talking about sort of um, future skills and the skills gap and coding. Um, someone the other day was worried, they were talking to me and they, they sort of said, I'm worried that we're developing the sort of digital burger flippers of the future. And to what extent, you know, will we develop creative coders or, or ones that, you know, how much of that will, will be automated to some extent and how much will allow for our creativity in coding? Mm. Well, I do worry that many coding initiatives focus too much, in my mind, on just helping kids prepare for jobs as future programmers or computer scientists. And don't get me wrong, there'll be, I do think there'll be great job opportunities there. Yeah. But that's not our main goal. The same way I really like the comparison with learning to write. Some people will grow up and become professional writers, you know, journalists or novelists, uh, and it's great to support them. They do wonderful work. But that's not the reason we teach everyone to learn to write. When you learn to write, you learn how to organize and share and express your ideas. And that's the way I like to think about coding as well. That coding shouldn't be just for people who plan to get professional careers as coders, although some will do that. But everyone should be able to use coding to express and share their ideas as they do with writing. Mm -hmm. And the same thing, too often when schools teach kids to learn to write, I think they spend too much time focused on grammar and punctuation as opposed to letting kids learn to express yeah. themselves through writing. And I want to do the same thing with coding. Coding shouldn't be focused just on the syntax and the yeah. technical detail. For me, I think learning to code should be about giving you a new voice so you can express your ideas by making your own animated stories or games. And you mentioned journalism there, and uh, you had a, a stint as a journalist, a tech journalist, is that right? Yes, I started right out okay. of college. I worked oh, right. for like five years as a technology journalist okay. covering Silicon Valley, so yeah. I was writing about early... Wow, so when you were covering Silicon Valley, what were the big things happening then? Because I can imagine some uh, big changes during that time. Yeah, so while I was covering it, it was in the early days of the personal computer, so it was wow. before... it was right before the Macintosh computer came out. So it was like the Apple II computer and how people were starting yeah. to use that. And it was right when the IBM PC came out. And the amazing um, Apple advert with the uh, very dystopian... Yes, 1984. Yeah. So it was quite a while ago. But it was really as people were just starting to get an understanding of how computers could be used uh, as a means of expression. The computers were seen as things that you just use to solve a problem and to you know, get a business job done. Mm -hmm. And I think in the early days in the personal computer, companies like Apple uh, and conferences like the West Coast Computer Fair were saying <laughs> that no, you know, computers can also be for everybody to express themselves. And I think that did inspire me. In fact, it was at a West Coast Computer Fair, uh, probably in 1982, that I first met Seymour Papert. Okay. And wow. I heard Seymour talk about his vision for computers and education. So remember, this was in the early days of personal computers just came out. And many people, when they thought about computers and education back then, thought, oh, computers could be great for delivering instruction or giving quizzes, and they'll know if you answer right or wrong and give you a next problem. And Seymour Popper was saying, no, that's not the way we want to use computers. Yeah. Computers should allow kids to create things and express themselves. And that really appealed to me. It felt like it was respectful to children and enabled children uh, to use the computer in a way that was really meaningful to them. And there's some amazing artwork that has come out of, of that as a result. And uh, it made me think of the Kraftwerk song about computer, is it computer love or something like that? Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard that. but um, uh, You're still very much immersed in the research. And, and, and I'm interested, so I interview a lot of people on the podcast. And I, I sometimes feel like this sort of pedagogical research that people refer to is very much of that era. Um, and I wonder if you could share, you know, some of the uh, some newest research that's coming out that 
you think is interesting and how it might inform you know we have all these um, products and solutions and uh, around us but uh, which are the sort of pieces of research that you think people should be looking at and taking inspiration from as well well in our work we're often guided both in the things we create but also in the research we do on what we call the four P's of creative learning projects passion peers and play mm. I think we've seen in our research they kids develop their creative abilities best when they're working on projects based on their passions in collaboration with peers in a playful spirit. So like, let's take the, the P of peers, uh, it, which is, highlights the social side of learning. It's one of the reasons why when we developed Scratch, we didn't just develop a programming language, but we integrated it with an online community so kids could share their creations with one another mm-hmm. and learn with and from one another. So we've had kids in our, we have you know, students, graduate students in our group doing research on studying how kids learn through remixing in Scratch. When they right. take someone else's project yeah. and they remix it to make a version of their own, you know, is that closer to just copying where they're just making a copy and they don't really learn anything? Or do they learn new things when they start with someone else's project and make a variation? And I think we've seen that creativity really spreads through the community mm-hmm. and people's first step in new forms of creative expression often come when they start from someone else's work and do a slight variation of it. So... You know, we look at each of those four P's and study how and what kids learn and how they develop their creative abilities as they work on projects based on their passions and collaboration with peers in a playful spirit. How do you see that playing out you know, when you're having conversations here versus the US? I mean, obviously there's lots of similarities, but do you think that conversation is slightly different? Um, I'm not sure that there are really big differences there. I think sometimes the biggest difference is not geographic, uh, but just there are these very different communities among yeah. educators and researchers. <laughs> and some people will only be convinced of things if they get a numerical result and they want quantitative measures to show you know, what percentage improvement when someone did something. And I think there's a challenge because a lot of the things that I think are most important developing as a creative thinker is very, very difficult to measure quantitatively. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of times people talk past each other and the people who want quantitative results oftentimes will introduce things that are easily assessed you know, you know, in a quantitative way. Yeah, yeah. For me, I think we shouldn't focus on what's most easy to assess, but rather what's most important for kids and then find ways to assess it. So we take a much more you know, uh, qualitative approach in a lot of the work that we do, where we collect portfolios of projects that kids create. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the portfolio of what kids create over time, you get to see that the way they progress as creative thinkers. But I think that's a much bigger divide of how people see what's a valid way of assessing you know, what kids are learning and how they're developing. And also, I think there's another big divide just on the goals of education in general. Mm-hmm. That for me, a very important goal is helping kids develop creatively and helping them develop their creative capacities. So that influences the type of activities and technologies I would develop and use. If other people are more interested in how kids learn a specific concept, you might take a very different approach. So I think we have to start from, you know, what are the goals of education and try to get, you know, the, the, some answers to that first. So, so you sort of sat in front of me and you have this, like, amazing, you're, you're sort of grinning and, and you're so enthusiastic about everything. And so for people listening in, you know, obviously sometimes if they've been working uh, in education for, I don't know, 10, 20 years or... You know, they're at a startup and they're working 14 to 18 hour days, whatever's, whatever's possible. Um, how do they keep that creativity? How do they keep that energy and not get sort of stuck in the ruts of processes? Well, recognizing the great value and importance of the things you're working on. If you don't recognize the value and importance of what you're working on, it's going to be very hard to put in the hard work that's needed, yeah. that's, that's needed to be creative. I think to do things well, you need to work very hard at it. Uh, and I think you're going to work hardest if you're working on things that you really care about and you so think are, are really valuable. So uh, for us, that's always where it comes to. So, you know, I think that we're always trying to see how can we, you know, I think that's what keeps me going is that I see the importance. I think it's so important to give all kids from all backgrounds in all places the opportunity to explore, experiment, and express themselves. You know, it's the way they're going to be most successful and happiest in their lives. And it's also just the most humanistic way of approaching it. 
you know, of, of giving them the opportunity to find their own you know, pathways. Rather than sort of squeezing out skills that are just for, you know, you're going to get into this job or it's yeah. very uh, kind of linear yeah. in that way. Now, I, and I know this can be difficult to, you know, to, to uh, bring all those possibilities to all kids everywhere. It's not that it's easy. It's important, but it's not easy. I sometimes describe myself, I say I'm a short-term pessimist, but a long-term optimist. Okay. Because I know how difficult it is to change educational systems and how difficult it is to change people's mindsets. Yeah, if yeah. people have a certain way of thinking, if they think education is about delivering information and instruction to kids, it's not easy to change their minds about that. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm a short-term pessimist because I know it's going to be hard, but it's so important that I'm willing to work very hard to try to change the way people think about it and to change those educational structures that get in the way. Too often schools are set up where disciplines are separated from each other. Kids of different ages mm-hmm. are separated from each other. You know, classes are only 50 minutes long and you move on to the next thing. It's really hard to have a project-based, interest-driven approach to learning when schools are set up that way. So in the long term, I think we need to change, but it's not easy to change those types of things. But I'm long-term optimist because I just know that the approaches that we talk about with projects, passion, peers, and play will enable kids to succeed in the future. So ultimately, people will see the need for this type of approach and it will win out in the end. How do, who do you find inspiration from? Do you read a lot of books or are there any books that you'd like to share with our listeners or other podcasts or, or people that you just find inspirational that are sort of doing some well, of this well, right one, now? One book that I read recently that I like uh, by Ted, Ted Dintersmith. Uh, it's called What School Could Be. Okay. Uh, and what he did was, he went around, this was in the United States, he spent an entire year just visiting schools where, and learning from what good teachers were doing. Uh, and he comes up with these great examples of all the different ways teachers are making things possible for the kids in their classrooms. So it shows what's possible. There are all these constraints that I just talked about, all these challenges. But good teachers are finding ways to succeed in sometimes very challenging settings. And I think Ted's book does a great job through the hundreds of schools that he visited over the course of the year. He tells the stories that I think do a great job of documenting what's possible. There's a few of these kind of, uh, we had like uh, Cleveland's, I don't know if you've heard about that before, by Lucy Crayon. Um, and here we've got uh, EdTech 50 schools where they sort of went across the United Kingdom uh, visiting different schools. And I think it's brilliant because it just puts forward those case studies of, yeah. of things that are actually working and, and it helps people contextualize it yeah, a little I think bit. we can learn and be inspired by great examples. Mm-hmm. The same reason that in this, it's with Scratch we have an online community yeah. so kids can be inspired by what others create. Educators should be able to be inspired by what others are doing and, and get and learn lessons from that. Okay, well thank you so much. Um, what's next for you? Last question. Um, you know, going forward, next six months, what does that look like? Well, we just came out with a new generation of Scratch called Scratch 3.0. Okay. So it's so exciting to see what kids are creating with this new generation. And we designed the new generation of Scratch so you can keep having these extensions, keep adding more modules. So I'm really excited that we now have a platform that we keep expanding and keep seeing all the wonderful things kids are doing. So what are some of those modules? What might they be adding? So some of them are connecting to the physical world. So you could okay. use Scratch to get sensor data from your micro bits. Okay. Uh, or some of them are connecting to web services. So, you know, we, right now there's a module for doing text-to-speech so you can make okay. your characters actually talk. Later this year, we're going to have speech recognition so you can make a scratch project that responds to voice commands. So you can add in these That's modules cool. that are you know, created by, by others and then add them to scratch. And so, I would imagine that adds a sort of an accessibility layer in for different types of learners as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's so important. We really want to make sure to make these opportunities available for everyone, for mm-hmm. all kids from all backgrounds of all abilities. Okay. Well, it's been a massive pleasure to meet you and thank you so much. Okay, thanks a lot. <laughs> thanks, Mitch. This reminded me of the recording we made back in September at the EdTech Podcast Festival with Shafina Bora. Head of Faculty Options at the London Design and Engineering UTC and Annie Duffield at the Institute of Imagination. Here they are in full flow. For me, it was this whole concept of why students in Year 7 in my previous schools would say to me, Miss, science is so boring. And I'd look at them and I'd say, thank you. Like, I'm not a science teacher, but 
thank you. Why is it boring? We never get to do anything fun. And so I started thinking about what is this fun aspect when they're coming from primary schools, which I hope are steering, you know, more imaginative play and creative dialogue to then suddenly structured classroom seating, staring at a board and a teacher throwing out keywords and concepts that they've never heard before. So I started questioning these kinds of things and developed simple ideas of using basic Lego and using different ideas really just within my Lego techniques that I, that I have personally developed over the years and applying them within lessons. And then came along Lego education, which allowed me to certify within that. So I can now sort of certify and train teachers and students in universities. But within my classroom, my psychology classroom, you will see students tinkering with Lego all the time. They're thinking, they're learning, they're creating, they're problem solving. And that's because the hands do it all for them. How many of us love to play? Just anything. How many of us love to play? So why are we not letting our kids play in their classrooms? Why? And you might say, oh, you know, schemes of work, teacher time, we've got to teach the test, blah, blah, blah. I've actually taken risks in my classroom where I've taken lesson time out to give them that time to actually play with Lego in their heads. They're thinking they're playing. And by the end of that, they've learned so much. And it's also because the brain has five, we have five sensory mechanisms for processing available to the brain. So why are we just using the eyes and the ears? Why are we not using our hands? Why is handwriting so poor nowadays? So there's lots of things that you can do as teachers, as educators, to think about how can we bring in very simple, not even time-consuming aspects to using your hands to, to better your learning. This directly feeds into my PhD currently, where I'm also researching scientifically how using hands-on learning, using Lego, Lego's my focus, to trigger creativity and intrinsic motivation specifically. Because I do think that when a child is in charge of their own learning, they're just going to get on with it. So there's so many things that your hands can do for you. If I was to ask you a Lego education question, put your hands behind your backs and if you were to describe to the person sitting next to you or beside you how to tie their shoelaces how many of you can do it without your hands okay come on and get the child to tie their two shoelaces perfectly so for me it is play with your hands get them learning get them learning in as many different ways as we can thank you very much and Annie at the Institute of Imagination how does that play out as well yeah, so just to give it a bit of context, the Institute of Imagination, we exist to, to champion and explore the power of imagination. And we do that through a variety of ways. That's uh, activities, events, research, training. But today I'm particularly focusing on the, the programme of activities that we run out of the Imagination Lab, where we work with a variety of partners, one of which is, is Lego. And we work with amazing volunteers and facilitators such as Shafina, who bring that amazing element of knowledge and understanding about the way that those learning programs work directly to the children that we interact with. For us, hands-on learning is everything that's just been said, but the way that we like to talk about it is hands-on, brains-on. So you have that active participation in the learning process, you're creating something, be it physical, digital or conceptual, but you're thinking at the same time. It's not just about what's going on with your hands, it's what's going on in your head. So by providing a space which is child-led, where children are able to follow their own lines of intuition, the, the learning process is really deepened, we feel. And you can see absolute benefits from that when you give the child the confidence to follow their own intuition and, and to discover the questions that they want the answers to, rather than us presenting them with a, a, a set process of how this bit of hands-on learning might look at the end of it, then the improvements you see in their confidence, their well-being, their creativity, it, it, it just shows. It shows on their faces, it shows in their incite, excitement when they talk about what they've been doing. So we really try to connect children to experts like Shafina just to make sure that they're really getting that benefit because that was a great description, wasn't it? Well, and Shafina, so you kind of alluded to the psychology of hands-on learning and obviously that's uh, one of your kind of uh, areas of expertise. I know when we spoke before that you also mentioned applying hands-on learning, in your opinion, is not just important from the learner point of view, but also from the person taking the class who might have perhaps done the same lesson and, and there's a potential to kind of switch off or become disengaged also as the teacher. 
Yes, and that's one of the things that I'm happy to share here. So, for example, for some of you who may know any of, of psychology, there's a Stanford Prison Experiment uh, that Philip Zimbardo did. It's, it's on every university program, on every A-level program. It's a core key study for A-level psychology. One of the skills we need for examination purposes is critical thinking. It's an assessment objective three, which is evaluation and what if, the what if scenarios, the contrasting evidence. And I find that a lot of students with the new A-levels and the new curriculum reforms find that really really difficult. And so I thought, right, if I could use Lego for them to build their models or their representation of the Stanford prison experiment, that itself creates questions. So I'm not doing anything. They've built this model. And then I have to say, right, okay, how could this have been improved, which is directly their evaluation skills for exam. And all they're doing is moving things around, looking at it from different dimensions because they can, because it's a 3D model of Lego. And that fosters so much discussion in the classroom to the point where we had about 21 evaluation points and the exam board only needs three. We had 21 evaluation points come out just from doing a simple task like that. And so it is about the fact that a teacher themselves, I know me, having to teach the same thing year in, year out until the syllabus changes is daunting. And if I'm going to lose my own motivation and my own sort of passion, then what's going to happen to them? So I've got to be on top of it from my end as well. And it shouldn't be that you teach the same lesson five years in a row. There should be an element of creativity going on in that for teachers themselves because we have so much to do. And I just think if I'm going to enjoy it, then they're going to enjoy it. And they do. If creativity and play are all important, what could be more important than finding out about Ben Calicott's new enterprise, the Toy Pioneers Club? No doubt, if you visited BET, you saw a lot of programmable robotics. So no doubt, Ben will be busy for the foreseeable. Great. So um, I'm here with Ben Calicott. Hi. um, Who uh, a few of you might know from uh, Primo Toys Days. Yeah, the good times. Uh, and um, yeah, it's it's the Friday at Bet, and uh, we've just been having a catch up about your new venture, and sort of the culmination, I suppose, of um, you know working across uh, both the education and toy product design spaces. If I can yeah. describe yeah. it as that. Yeah. Um, so, for the sake of our listeners who didn't uh, listen into that part of the conversation. Um, perhaps you can explain a little bit about who you are, how you got into all of this, and what your latest venture is sure. as well. Thank you, Sophie. Um, so, yeah, my um, my background's traditionally in toy design. Um, so I've been sort of working in that field for over 10 years now. Um, more kind of like consumer toys. So my background's working for Early Learning Centre and Mother Care. Um, then I uh, decided to to design my own toy product, uh, a den fort making construction kit um, called Plug, and went through that whole journey of building my own business with an old friend of mine um, from sort of start to finish, and then um, sort of fell in love with the the kind of the, the business creation as well as the element of design, um, and I discovered um, Primo Toys over four years ago and whilst my own thing was maybe not going quite as I had planned um, I sort of jumped in and joined Primo in the early days um, because I just absolutely kind of loved the idea um, of what Cubetto and Primo were doing around teaching children these um, sort of uh, future skills around computational thinking and teaching them about coding and programming and sort of seeing them use the products and really engage and kind of you know um, you know, sort of seeing them really, you know, it's a bit cliche, but that, you know, learning through play was is completely true when, when I see the kids using um, the playset. So I was with Primo for four years and went through the whole um, development of the product and we went through the Kickstarter campaigns and getting it to market. Um, so sort of really fell in love with the educational side of, of, of toys and products um, and sort of wanted to sort of share those experiences. So now I've actually, um, as of last year, I've um, opened up the waiting list for a new um uh, a new initiative of mine which is called the Toy Pioneers Club so what I'm really trying to do is um, get uh, sort of toy startups sort of ed tech startups um, that, that are driven by a value and a purpose uh, and, and to form a community for them to come together um, virtual community to um, sort of some peer-to-peer networking some webinars and to really learn and gain all the resources and knowledge they need to go and build um, better businesses and products than the ones that exist today 
Um, so it's a bit of a long-term you know, play. Interesting. But so the Toy Pioneers Club. So do you have any kind of startups already in the club? Mm. What, where, where are we at with the development of that? Yeah, so uh, at the sort of early stage of 2018, I um, managed to get uh, sort of 13, 14 startups onto a Slack channel, um, really just to sort of myself figure out what it means to try and build community. Um, and those startups themselves are sort of crossing over. Some of them are um, uh, sort of exhibiting here at BET. So um, uh, Marbotic, for example, um, are, are, were part of the club. Um, and there's a, a Robotical up in Scotland, a part of that as well. But then we've got more consumer um, sort of focused toys um, that uh, all have a purpose. Um, so it's a bit of a, a bit of a mix, a mixed bag. Um, I sort of realized from that experience that building community is hard and it's going to take a long time. So I, um, so sort of, yeah, near the end of last year, I sort of took a step back from that initial group just to refocus what I want this to become. And then as of October last year, I launched it officially with the website, opening up the waiting list, and then hopefully over the next coming months, we'll then sort of open up applications for startups to, to join the club. Okay, and so if I'm a startup that wants to join a club, what do, how much does it cost? What do I get in return? And uh, yeah, what's the? Is it is it like an accelerator program? Great. Is it an incubator? What what is yeah, it? Good questions, <laughs> all valid. Um, so the sign up will be um, it'll be an application based. So there'll be um, a sort of a set criteria to get into the club. So that's mainly going to be around like how how old is your business, the size of your business, what are your values, what is it that you're trying to sort of promote and do. Um, one, one, and that there'll be a free component to it. So that'll be. Um, um, sort of members directory forums sort of webinar access um, and then there will be a, a paid element most likely that's um, yet to be kind of defined I'm still kind of trying to work that out myself um, which will be uh, more focused on um, sort of access to actual like resources that you can you know tangible resources you can use um, probably a bit of one-to-one sort of expert coaching mentoring and access to a, a range of industry experts yeah it's, it's a tricky one I talked to a lot of founders and I, I feel there's a bit of expectation that they're just going to kind of skyrocket sales Mm -hmm. and I think the reality is that when you're dealing in relatively high value uh, product you know they're not these these kind of electronic products inherently are expensive because they're they they cost a lot you know relatively a lot to make that you've then got a market that you know you haven't got a, a you know a mass market out there that are going to be able to buy lots of these products so you're you've got to really understand your expectations that you probably you won't be selling hundreds and thousands of these units and therefore if you're sort of you know but you need the investment because you need the, the capital to sort of develop these products but at the same time the return on that investment probably is going to be a long-term mm-hmm. gain not a, a short term so part of the, what I'm trying to do with the club is also trying to educate that message as well and that's sort of what I've learned from my own experience and my own observations of the industry. So if people want to sign up and see if you're, you're uh, going to accept them into the club do uh, <laughs> Are you on Twitter as well? Is the t- um, I'm not. The club's not on Twitter. The club's not on um, Twitter. It's like, trying, a, it's like Fight Club. It's, it's like Fight uh, Club, yeah. The yeah, uh, cool. best place to go is uh, toypioneers.club. Okay. Um, I, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Ben Calicott as well. Um, social presence will be growing, but it's about managing <laughs> what I can actually manage myself uh, with the time I have. Um, but no, that's the best place to go. There's a waiting list register details and yeah hopefully over the coming months uh, it will be going uh, live wonderful well thank you very much Ben thank you very much Sophie and finally I caught up with the indisputable force Ian Heard about AI creativity and emotions I'm excited to work with his students in 2019 on the podcast Brilliant. It's got lots of, lots of features. Hello. So uh, I've just kind of, well, we were just wrapping up like almost an hour conversation about uh, pretty much everything and it was really interesting. And then I thought, why aren't we recording this? And I was with Ian Hurd. So welcome, Ian. <laughs> welcome. Hello. <laughs> so Ian, um, can you tell all of our listeners who you are? Who are you? What, you, so, what have you been up to? Uh, well, um, I am uh, a person. I'm not a bot. Uh, I uh, teach um, media and creative arts uh, at various institutions and uh, I've just completed my master's degree at the Institute of Education uh, Knowledge Lab uh, in Education Technology. Um, Yeah, so that's that's who I am and where I'm at. 
And, and you were telling me that you're sort of in the masters. It was a lot of it was focused on AI and its impact on creativity, and that was what where we kind of went down that rabbit. Yeah, hole. I mean that was that was my focus. That was my concentration for my research, looking at you know uh, what factors are important for uh, the development of AI, and um, you know looking into how uh, my my research was looking into how uh, we can affect non-cognitive um, factors that affect have been shown empirically to affect creativity. Uh, but then, you know, there was people. People would people would choose their own focuses on on the masters. Uh, but we spoke about the uh, design and use of technology in education um, module that we did, which was an elective module. And obviously, we were working uh, in groups for that, uh, learning about how to uh, think about things like knowledge representation, uh, which uh, can then. Uh, be the support and be the thing that uh, that machine learning and artificial intelligence learns from and uses as a model to um, help define and direct that learning. So, uh, so that was our focus on there, rather than the technical aspects of it. You know, we didn't do uh, coding and programming. There were people on the course who were interested in that, um, who would take it forward. But our concern was looking at you know the implications of that, so ethical implications, um, and also. Um, the, yeah, from a very practical perspective as well. How, what are the implications for uh, for develop, developing this technology? How does it work in a practical context in a classroom or or whatnot? So, um, so yeah, that was quite a large part of it, and uh, yeah, it was very very interesting. And so, and part of that that we were speaking about was around the connection between emotion and creativity, or happiness and creativity. So, yeah, how yeah, did that all play out? It was very very interesting. I mean. Um, there's lots of research into into creativity and uh, creativity support systems and these kind of things. Um, but I wanted to move past that. I, um, I found a paper by um, someone actually that was uh, going to be talking at the um, uh, the learning uh, exhibition at UCL Knowledge Lab. Uh, well, across UCL actually um, last year, and the paper was about um, how we can start developing AI that. Uh, can actually respond to emotions and, and be uh, act as like a kind of a mentor, so or provide mentor-like features, and that kind of sparked my interest in how we can then link something like that um, up to things like, you know, those non-cognitive features, uh, uh, sorry, non-cognitive um, skills that people have, um, which actually affect their creativity. So there are certain ones that, that affect creativity and, uh, and we can actually use AI to, to support them in things like user experience and things like that. So, uh, so that was quite interesting for me, how we, can, how we can do that. You can't force people to be creative, to be creative but you, you, you can help get them into a space where it's more possible. You can create the, um, the circumstances for, uh, for creativity. You know, people need to be happy to be creative and they don't necessarily need to be happy all the time. They just don't need to be sad and they need to feel safe and need to trust the environment they're in and in in that situation actually from a a brain perspective it opens up uh, cognitive fluency which enables creativity to become um, more likely and and how about the um the academic that you mentioned was here on wednesday and and what they were talking about as well yeah um oh what was his name dr mark um dr mark i'll call him for now (laughs) and he was talking about uh yeah, he was basically yes, mirroring what I was saying, really, that uh, you, you, people can't be happy all the time, and we, that shouldn't be our aim, and it's not about that. It's about emotional intelligence and giving people the skills to be able to, you know, uh, not be sad all the time and, and not, uh, not read signals incorrectly and, uh, and be more resilient socially. Th- those are the things, just to be more, more balanced. So we're not removing, uh, we're not enforcing certain... Uh, <laughs> positive states you know like uh, it's more about creating a uh, a situation where people can uh, perceive things around them in a in a logical but you know uh, emotionally intelligent way which will help them no end it it helps learning just in general um, but you know especially for things like to be creative uh, yeah it really helps to be emotionally intelligent because then you're 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 more likely to be in a situation where uh, that part of your mind opens up and the possibilities for being creative that divergent thinking you're not, you're not kind of constantly fighting fires that perhaps aren't there or aren't, aren't really important so. exactly yeah yeah i mean there's a there's a lot that can get in the way of education and uh a lot obviously being creative and wanting to be creative people to be creative in educational contexts uh is the same as you know wanting someone to learn maths or whatnot 
people have got to be in a good place. And there's lots of things that are barriers to learning. Learning is a very specific experience uh, that involves uh, focus and, yeah, generally just, you know, feelings of, of being safe, you know. So those are, especially these days, you know, uh, kids, and like, you know, Dr. Mark was saying, you know, about uh, depression and things like that, you know, um, being a massive issue, mental health being a massive issue. Um, you know, we need to be able to foster those environments and we need every tool at our disposal. And one of those is using, um, using AI more effectively. Uh, and one of those is, you know, is being uh, a good teacher that um, is able to embed those kind of uh, 21st century skills and emotional intelligence into the curriculum in clever ways. Well, and can you tell us about your work doing exactly that as well and, and your new job? I don't know if, you, if, you, if you're in a position uh, well, to kind of talk about that. Or? Still waiting for the references to go okay. through. I'm pretty sure I'll, I'll be taken on. But yeah, so um, working with a, a, a London borough, uh, let's say, um, further education institution which is uh, part of a large consortium uh, so yeah working with uh, my media students for example you know one of the first things I do rather than trying to you know um, talk about how we embed um, soft skills it's something that we just do all of the time I, it's part of everything that they do you know uh, how to do things effectively how to be resilient how to communicate how to collaborate these are all just things that, that happen every single day and I give feedback on because it's part of the course you know we the courses we run um, which are uh, University Arts London courses are more to do with problem-based learning and so it fits it fits in well with that to teach you know or, or to encourage 21st century skills as a precursor to actually starting on you know any kind of live briefs uh, where learners are, are suddenly you know in the throes of working uh, together and as individuals um, in a flexible environmental context it's really important to have that. So I can imagine if I'm a teacher listening in and I've got a student and they need, they need to build their resilience, I can think of this as an example, it's, it's that kind of difficult conversation thing, isn't it? So, you know, if perhaps they sort of say, no, this is too difficult or I can't do it or burst into tears, how do you deal with that and how do you approach that kind of critically but constructively? Well, for me, the most important thing that I can do with my learners is uh, engender and maintain that trust. And so if I do that, I like to think that if there are situations like that, that I can say the right things to help encourage them and inspire them and show them things. You know, but that's part of, the, part of the training at the start of the course is to show people that actually they can transcend their own boundaries. And usually a lot of their own boundaries are really just... You know, uh, generated over time and uh, and uh, and are pretty mythical. You know, people can do all kinds of things. Uh, so I inspire kids by showing them how that's done, and also my own journeys. You know, like when I I've got two master's degrees now. I didn't tell you this, but you're collecting them. <laughs> I'm collecting them. Yeah, <laughs> actually, one of my doctors called me a collector, but the, I don't know. But I did uh, the last one I did was quite a while ago, but when I did it I wasn't sure whether I could do it or not and a friend of mine said you'll be fine and I did it and I passed with distinction and I and it, I was taken aback uh, after that reflecting on it just thinking I never I didn't think I'd be able to pass this and I exceeded uh, way exceeded my own expectations and you know it's like stories like that you know I don't like to talk about myself there's plenty of other people who've done great stuff no but everyone can relate you know, to that idea of thinking oh I can't do it I can't do it and then if they do take the leap thinking oh actually I, I'm the other side of that and why didn't I do it earlier or why didn't I yeah yeah and a lot of resilience is about how to deal with problems you know uh, in the moment and prioritising and thinking critically about what needs to be done next um, and then just kind of working through that you know and eventually you, you succeed in, uh, in achieving something and that's what resilience is because that's the buzz once you do it you get that buzz and it's it's an eye-opener it's a real revelation actually yeah you suddenly realize that you can do things you didn't think you would be able to do and uh so what are you going to do next <laughs> um just continue you know i mean like you know my passion at the moment is is in lifelong learning and uh i've got a project i'm working on uh to help people who are uh, either in work going into work, they could be coming at colleges or in colleges, there could be people who are career transitioning, because um, uh, I've had a lot of uh, friends and, and colleagues who've gone through this and it inspired me, uh, to develop um, you know, a platform for, uh, for, these, for, for challenge-based opportunities uh, that uh, work with employers and also individuals to develop uh, you know, uh, those 21st century skills and also give them something that they can put on, a, on, a, uh, on an interactive CV. Um, 
so they can actually you know find new work and uh, and go in between different types of uh, employment prospects uh, which is going to be really important yeah. when automation yeah. takes hold yeah, yeah. <laughs> well thank you so much and uh, thanks for sharing your work with us you're welcome thank you Ian. Last week I packed in dinners at the House of Commons learning about professional development across Teach First and innovative schools in Devon, plus why money isn't the answer solely to closing the attainment gap and how blockchain may help to provide learners without identity new access to teaching and learning, jobs and the skilled economy. Congrats to all those who are at the Educate graduation ceremony and keep your ears primed for a trailer for our new podcast series coming soon. I'm busy binge-reading Sir Anthony Seldon's fourth education revolution, along with all those in our book club, so why not message us with what you're reading or listening to? On that note, thanks very much to Hussein Ayed, founder at Tutor Edit, who got in touch to say, Hey Sophie, I've been following the podcast for a while since I'm in the industry and wanted to let you guys know you're doing us a major service, so a big, big thank you. We're looking forward to bringing you new recordings with educational researchers trying to crack some of teaching and learning's hardest nuts. So keep a lookout for that and our new series coming soon. And that's all for now. Have a great week. Bye.